Those of you that were in the Second World War will remember the Seabees. That was long before my time, but some of you old codgers will recall that particular organization. And uh, their motto was, the improbable we will do today, uh, the impossible will take a little longer. I thought about that uh, slogan quite a bit. It's a very stimulating sort of thing. But I really think as Christians we can take that one step further. If we rightly understand the mighty resources that we have in Christ, we can routinely not only do the improbable, but also the impossible. And the passage we're going to look at this morning, I think, teaches us about those impossible things that we all face, which can be done through the resources that we have in Christ. Turn with me to Matthew, the 14th chapter, and I'd like to read for you verses 22 through 33. And immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking upon the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, It's a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and began to sink. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. This uh, episode, as you know, comes right on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. And as Steve pointed out last week, all the gospel accounts converge on that story. All four evangelists tell the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, that sort of thing won't occur again until you come to the events surrounding the trial and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So it ought to tell us that the feeding of the 5,000 is a very significant event, at least in the minds of the evangelists. And it was so because it was for them a very clear messianic sign. There was no question in their mind that the feeding of the 5,000 indicated that Jesus was the Messiah. For one thing, we know from Mark's account that it took place right around uh, the Passover in the spring. Mark makes a point of saying that they sat on green grass, which would suggest the spring of the year, that particular season, and the Jews all expected Messiah to manifest himself during the spring, about the time of the Passover. So this particular uh, sign is important because it occurred at that time. Secondly, Jesus here is acting as Moses acted in the wilderness. He's providing food for people in a miraculous way. And uh, Moses in the, Old Test in the Old Testament stands as an archetype of the prophet who is to come. And uh, the people recognize that Jesus, uh, through this miraculous feeding, was acting very much as Moses did. 
And uh, so at that point, a sort of grassroots movement began to draft him as king, to make him king. John gives us that information in his gospel. They uh, wanted to seize him by force and make him king at this point. Apparently, uh, the disciples wanted to linger and uh, see what would happen. Now, you can understand why. They had been the target of a great deal of opposition and, and rejection. Uh, they'd had a hand in the miraculous feeding, and they perhaps wanted to bask a little bit in the admiration of the crowd, and now that things were turning and looking better for the Lord, and they wanted to be part of it. But uh, the Lord would have none of that. As we read in the passage, he made them get into the boat. He compelled them to get into the boat, and he sent them to the other side while he himself dispersed the crowd. And then he went off into the, into the mountain regions in order to pray. Now, this apparently was a habitual practice of the Lord. He frequently got out of the mainstream. He withdrew and went up into the mountains to spend protracted periods of prayer. It was essential for him. And, of course, what, uh, what conclusion I draw from that action is that if the Lord needed long periods of prayer, how much more do I? We just need those sorts of, those times of refreshment and realignment of our priorities when we go back to, to basic truths and realign our thinking with God's Word and His plan for our life. Uh, Carolyn's been gone all this week. She's been on vacation in California, and I stayed home with the kids most of the week. And so I know what it is to be a mother, and uh, you hit the floor running about uh, 6.30 in the morning, and the, the first thing that comes to mind is not uh, what do I get to do this morning, but what do I have to do, you know? And, and your day is spent uh, running kids all over the countryside, doing carpools and all sorts of things. It gets to be very, very frantic. Life's just that way. You know, we're making deals. We're transacting business. We're driving carpools. We're buying groceries. We're, that's, that's the way our day is. We're, we're just wired. We, we really have no seemingly very little time to get out of the stream of things to ask ourselves some very basic questions. Why am I doing this? What am I really for? What are the priorities in life? What's important? What am I doing that I should not be doing? What am I not doing that I should be doing? And therefore, I believe we all need time to get away, to get out of the busyness of life and sit down and think about what really matters, what counts in life. Unfortunately, most of the time when we sit down to think, the radio or TV is going, or we're listening to music, and uh, if we're thinking it at all, we're just aligning ourselves with some of the nonsense that comes in over the soaps and, and uh, quiz shows and those sorts of things. We're constantly distracted and running and never asking ourselves, why are we running? I was driving down the street the other day, and I saw a jogger, perspiration all over her face, uh, her face was contorted. She's obviously struggling. I have a friend who says the reason he doesn't jog is that he's never yet seen a jogger with a smile on his face. And she was struggling down, down Fairview with a headset on, a stereo headset. And I punched Josh and I said, there it is. That's it. That's the epitome of the spirit of this age, running and never taking the time to ask ourselves why we're running, just distracted. You know, that's the way we are. And we need time to get out of the stream and do some thinking. Uh, we spent the early part of the week in a backcountry ranch up near Elk City. And one of the highlights of the week was some time that I spent with the uh, 
with the manager up there, the caretaker and his wife, uh, Ralph and Lily, whom Steve married just this past spring. And uh, before Ralph was married, he spent an awful lot of time up there by himself. He'd go uh, through the entire winter, often snowbound. His only uh, communication with the outside world was a, was a two-way radio. And as a result of our conversation, I found that he doesn't like to read, hardly ever reads anything. And so my obvious question was, what do you do with your time? How did you spend your time up here during the winter? And he said, well, he's just kind of sort of a laconic way of speaking. He says, well, he said, I just got to know myself real good. And I thought, uh, he's absolutely right. Uh, that's what we need to do. We need to get by ourselves for a time so we can come to know who we are. Now, the interesting thing is that you don't get to know yourself just by being alone. And the Lord didn't merely go into the mountains here to commune with nature or to talk to himself. He went into the mountains to pray. Uh, Matthew, in his wording of this, uh, of this event, is very clear. He went for the purpose of prayer. He wanted to get out of the stream and talk to his heavenly Father and remind himself of the great truths by which his life was, was governed. He wanted to get things straight. See, he had an opportunity to bypass the cross. They wanted to make him king so he could forego all the pain and the struggle and the, stre and the stress and go directly to the crown. And that was a very real temptation at this point in his life, and the Lord needed to get out of the mainstream for a time to remind himself of the very special plan that the Father had for him. And so he talked to the Father. And that, by the way, is how you get to know yourself. Uh, the process works like this in me. It usually starts with anxiety. I get uptight about something. Normally because uh, I think it all depends upon me. Somehow I've got to scheme and connive and manipulate things and work it out so that, that I can somehow get myself out of this mess that I've gotten myself into or solve this problem in some way. And if I'm doing it right, I don't always, but if I'm doing it right, that anxiety is the tip-off. I, I need to talk these things over with the Father and get alone and begin to express my desires to Him. And then an interesting thing begins to happen. Though I began by expressing my desires, after a while I begin to uncover His desires for me in this situation. I start out complaining, Lord, why don't you get this person off my back? And why in the world is this individual so unresponsive and unhelpful? And, and the Lord says, now, wait a minute. Whoop, wait a minute. What about you? What are you doing in this situation? How do you need to respond? What does the Word say to you about your next, uh, your next actions toward this individual, you see? And through a time of communion fellowship with the Father, he begins to align us with his will. I really believe that's primarily what prayer does. It's God's way of getting us in line with him, seeing things from his standpoint, his perspective. And therefore, we need these times of protracted prayer, lengthy prayer. Now, it is true that we can go through the day praying. Scripture says to pray without ceasing. We ought to go through the, the entire course of the day uh, talking things over with the Lord, asking for help and strength when we need it. But for myself, that ongoing spirit of prayer has its source in a lengthy period of prayer. 
on a somewhat regular basis. If I don't do the one, the other dries up. And I know for myself that the most difficult thing in the world is to block out time to pray. I'll do everything else under the sun. I'll read the Bible. I'll read religious books. I'll share my faith. I'll do all sorts of things. But it is very difficult to find time to pray. And I think it's because the enemy knows that's our source of victory. And if we let down there, then we're, we're vulnerable to all sorts of attacks in other areas of our life. Another point I want to make is that if the Lord saw the need for these periods of prayer, how much more do we need it? Now that's where we begin. The Lord withdrew into the mountains, realigned his thinking with the Father's will for his life. Now he realizes that it is indeed the cross that he must face. He can't bypass it. And uh, he turns now toward that, that uh, cross and the necessity of preparing the disciples to carry on uh, after his physical departure. And uh, so he goes back to meet the disciples in the boat. Now re recall, he had put them in the boat and sent them across to the other side. And in verse 24, we read, The boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Assuming that they ate dinner shortly before dark, the night before, they had been rowing for about six to eight hours. And if you've ever been in a boat on an open sea and the wind is contrary, you know exactly what the disciples were encountering. Their shoulders were aching, their backs were sore, they were wet and cold. It was uh, by now about... Uh, 3 to 6 a.m. in the morning. They had been rowing for a long time. They were tired and exhausted and making little headway. John says in his gospel, they had only rowed about three or four miles in the six to eight hours they had been in the boat. John, I think, adds that little detail because he was the one doing the rowing. I'm sure Matthew wasn't. Uh, he doesn't even mention it. But uh, they had been struggling for some time against the wind. You see, the problem was a contrary wind. I have to confess that I have always misunderstood this story. I assumed that uh, what they encountered was a, a storm on the magnitude of the one described in Matthew 8 when the boat was about to sink. But none of the gospel writers indicate that the boat was shipping water or that they were about to sink. It was simply a contrary wind. They couldn't make any headway. That's all. They were staying in one place and rowing. And uh, they were getting discouraged. And about three or four o'clock in the morning, they look up, and the Lord is strolling by. <laughs> Literally, that's what he was doing. He wasn't straining up one wave and down the other. He wasn't leaning into the wind and struggling against the gale. He was simply strolling by. Mark says he almost walked by the boat. He started right by the boat. And the disciples do a double take. John says they gawked at him. And they thought it was a ghost. Now you have to put yourself in this situation. It's the middle of the night. It was probably a full moon, clear sky. And uh, through the mist they see this figure walking on the water. And they scream in fear. I have to confess, I would do the same thing. And so would you. Because people don't normally walk on the water. Ghosts do, but not people, you see. And they didn't recognize the Lord, and so they shout in fear. And in the fourth 
watch of the night, he came to them walking upon the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. He was in perfect control. As I said before, he, he wasn't struggling against the elements. He was in control of the elements. The contrary wind was no problem to him. He was simply taking a walk. And now he wants them to know that he's here to take control. Everything is all right. It's I, he said. It's okay. Don't worry. And Peter, with his characteristic impetuous nature, answered him and said, Lord, if it is you... Command me to come to you on the water. Peter wanted to do what the Lord was doing. It never occurred to him that men don't walk on the water. That's impossible. But Peter wanted to be like his Lord. He wanted to manifest the same mastery over the elements around him. He wanted to come to the Lord. And the Lord said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. That statement was so extraordinary that the, some early scribe apparently changed the text. Many of our texts say he got out of the water in order to come to Jesus. But our oldest and best manuscripts say he got out of the boat and he came to Jesus. He was actually walking on the water. I would love to have been there. Peter takes one tentative step on the water and Holds him up. And he takes another. And it's feeling pretty good. And he starts striding out across the water. And men being what they are, I'm sure that the disciples were shouting from the book, Hey, from the boat, Hey, Peter, go for it. <laughs> and Thomas says, Hey, you're going to float like a cannonball, Peter. And away he goes. He's walking across the water. And the Lord, I'm sure, was grinning from ear to ear saying, Come on, Peter, come on across the sea and he's just the most exciting thing he's ever done in his life and all of a sudden he looks up and he sees the he hears the wind blowing around his ears and he thinks what in the world am I doing out here and down he starts to go and the Lord reaches out with that big carpenter's hand of his and grabs him by the front of his tunic and just pulls him out of the water And then they walk back to the boat together. And the Lord says to Peter, Oh, Peter, you're a little faith. He uses a term of, really, it's a term of endearment that the Lord very frequently used with regard to the disciples. You, you, your faith hasn't grown up yet, Peter. just have to grow. That's all. You're a little faith. You haven't learned to be audacious enough in your faith to really go for broke to count on me for anything to do the impossible you're just a little faith that's all I have a friend uh, who, was, who has a great illustration of faith in his family background his, his father and grandfather had a, a farm on the Susquehanna River and uh, the river regularly froze during the winter time and in order to get to uh, get to the market they had to drive their mule wagons across the, across the river 
In this particular winter, the, the ice was not very thick. And so this, my friend's father, when he got to the river, he got down on his hands and knees and he walked across the river on his hands and knees, feeling ahead of him to be sure that the ice would, would hold him up. And when he was right in the middle of the river, he heard this clatter behind him and he turned around and his father, my friend's grandfather, had started the mule from the top, the mule team from the top of the hill and he raced down the bank right across the river and up the other side and my friend's father was down on his hands and knees making his way across the river. And, and the point, of course, is obvious. It's that sort of audacious faith that God wants us to have. To just believe Him for anything. And go for broke, no matter what it costs. And that's what, that's what the Lord wanted Peter to learn, you see. You know why he was a little faithful, the Lord tells us. He says he had doubt. Why do you doubt? Now, the word here for doubt doesn't mean to be unbelieving. He's already called Peter a little faith. He has some faith. He's not unbelieving. It's a word that means to be ambivalent, to have one eye on one thing and one eye on something else. The etymology of the word suggests the idea of standing two places at one time. It's a, much like our idiom, one foot in one camp and one in the other. Peter was counting on the Lord to some extent, but he also had uh, some other resources that he was counting upon. And in the midst of his walk, he discovered that his own resources were not adequate. And so he was in doubt. So he was uncertain. He was hesitant. It's the same thing Jesus says to the disciples when he points out, if the eye is single, then the whole body will be full of light. If the eye is evil, and, and the word means dual, how great is that darkness? If we have one eye on the Lord and one eye on any other resource, then we don't have all that God is. We're little faiths. But if we, as the hymn says, turn our eyes upon Jesus and we're counting wholly and fully upon Him for everything in life, then we can do the impossible. Not someday, but now. And so the Lord, having rescued Peter, starts back to the boat with him. Let me ask you a question. When Peter started to go down, his cry was, Lord, help! It's really just one word. Help! And the Lord rescued him. Why did Peter cry for help? Peter could swim. There wasn't a fisherman on, that, uh, on the Sea of Galilee who couldn't swim. We know from the Gospels that Peter could swim. In John 20... When he and the disciples were rowing across the sea and they saw Jesus on the beach, when they were about a hundred yards offshore, John says, Peter jumped into the water, clothes and all, and swam to the Lord while, instead of waiting for the boat to be beached. He could swim. He could have gone back to the boat, could have swum on to the Lord. Why didn't he swim? Well, because he recognized that anything less than walking on water would be defeat for him. And he knew in order to do the impossible, he had to have God's salvation. He couldn't do it on his own. And that's why he cried out to the Lord, help. And you see, that's what we have to learn. If we're going to do the impossible in our life, then it's only possible through God's power. We simply don't have it. We don't have the resources in our personality and our our. Uh, academic backgrounds or our physical strength or whatever they may be. We simply don't have what it takes. 
To live on the level that is expected of us as God's men and women, it takes divine power. And that's why Peter cried out, Lord, save me. There are three observations I'd like to make about this passage. The first is that adversity is to be anticipated. You can't expect it to come. That's the name of the game. You cannot walk with the Lord without encountering adverse circumstances. As Paul puts it, unto you it is graciously given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. So let's once for all rid ourselves of the idea that to walk in fellowship means that you'll have smooth sailing from here on in. You will not. The apostles did not. The Lord himself, who was always obedient to the Father, did not. And we will not. So don't expect it. Life will have its ups and downs. It won't be uniformly adverse, but there will be times of adversity in our life. They are to be anticipated. Secondly, Adversity almost always a follow almost always follows some accomplishment. I find that's true in my life. A great time of victory is a time when we need to watch out because invariably the next step is going to be a tough one. We come through some uh, period of, of real triumph in our life, in, either in our personal life or in our ministry, and we think it's going to be clear sailing ahead, and it's not. Things get, get tough. I always think of Elijah in this regard. Elijah affected this great victory over the, the priests of Baal at Mount Carmel. And uh, as he goes back to Samaria, you know what's going through his mind. He believes that the nation will turn back to the Lord. He's going to start home Bible studies in Samaria, and he's going to be the chaplain of Ahab's uh, court. And uh, he's going to be able to preach regularly to the Senate, and he envisions a great revival sweeping through Samaria. So excited is he that he runs the 27 miles from Mount Carmel back to Samaria. And Jezebel, with one word, snuffs out the whole movement. Now that's the sort of thing we can expect. Adversity often follows right on, on the heels of some great accomplishment. Right after the, fighting, the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples ran into these adverse circumstances. Now, they were not sinning. They weren't guilty of any disobedience. They were, in fact, explicitly obedient to the Lord. He said, get in the boat and go. And they got in the boat and went. And they ran into this contrary wind. They were, as we would put it, right in the center of God's will. And yet immediately after some time of great victory in their life, they encountered adversity, and so will we. But the third principle I see is that adversity, when rightly utilized, always re leads to advance. If you were to ask Peter what was the highlight of his experience with the Lord during the years of his incarnation, I believe he would point to this event interesting that it's not mentioned at all in Mark, which is Peter's gospel. He supervised the writing of that gospel. It's not mentioned there, I think, because of Peter's characteristic modesty. But I think if you talk to Peter and you ask him, what's the highlight of your life? He would say, the time I walked on the water 
on the Sea of Galilee. Because that's what I learned how to make possible the impossible. I did something that no one had ever done before. And it came out of that difficult night of rowing against the wind. I would never have learned that lesson if I hadn't first had to struggle. And that's the highlight of my life. Let me say something about the Lord's walk on the water. You say, well, of course he could walk on the water. He was God. After all, that's what you would expect God to do. He can rule. He rules over the elements. He could walk on water. That's a demonstration of his deity. Well, my question then is, on what basis did Peter walk on the water? He wasn't God. No, Jesus' walk on the water is not at all a demonstration of his deity. It's a demonstration of his ideal humanity. He walked on the water not as God, but as man dependent upon God. Do you know that during the days of Jesus' incarnation, he never acted as God? You know how I know that? Because he tells us so. He says in John, I never do anything of myself. How much did Jesus do by himself? Nothing. He laid aside the use of his deity. I have no question about his deity. He was God. But he laid aside the independent use of his deity, and he always acted as man dependent upon God. Therefore, he does not have an edge on us. What he did, we can do. And Peter saw that. He could walk on water like Jesus could. And so can you. Now, what impossible circumstance are you facing in your life this week. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe your marriage is impossible. And you look at that man or woman and you say, I cannot live one more day with him or her. I have had it. We go through the same fusses every day, the same arguments. He never changes. She never changes. The issues are always the same. I've been hammering away at this thing for 15 years. I have had it. And of course, the world conspires against us and says, right, you've had it. Get out. That's the way to handle that situation. Find somebody else. But you know, God gives grace to live with impossible people. He gives us the power to hang in there in situations where anyone else would bail out. Or perhaps it's some relationship that you form that you know is wrong, but it's giving you a great deal of happiness security right now. Maybe you've fallen in love with someone that you shouldn't fall in love with. And uh, they're giving you the love and security that you're not getting from home. And you're saying, I, I, I know this thing is wrong, but I, it's impossible to cut it off. I can't do it. But you can. <laughs> you can. Or maybe someone that you love very much has disappeared from your life. And you're saying, I can't go on without them. But you can. Or maybe the economy has crunched you. And you don't know how you're going to make it to the end of next month or this year. And you're saying, we can't do it. We can't make it. There's no way. It's impossible. The numbers just don't add up. The month runs out before the check runs out before the month does. Can't do it. It's impossible. But you can you can do it. 
Or maybe it's your work situation and someone that's just impossible to work for or live with. And you're saying, I can't do it. But you can. You see? The improbable you can do today, the impossible you can do today. Peter learned that because he did something that was absolutely impossible. There was no explanation for Peter's walk in terms of his humanity. He did not have webbed feet. He was not wearing water wings. There was no explanation apart from the fact that he was a man dependent upon Jesus Christ. That's where our salvation comes from. So whatever impossible thing you have to face this week, will you remember this? We can do all things. Not many things, not some things, but we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Let's stand together, shall we? Father, teach us that great principle. Deliver us from the feeling that it all depends upon us. Teach us to count on you for everything, to do the impossible in your strength. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.